Hi everyone, and thank you very much for joining for this evening's LSE Festival event on addressing housing needs in rapidly growing cities. My name is Priya Mannering, and I'm a cities economist at the International Growth Centre. The International Growth Centre is a collaboration between the London School of Economics and the University of Oxford um, that aims to promote sustainable growth in developing cities by providing demand-led policy research that can provide advice for the trade-offs policymakers face in developing countries. So I work on a new initiative called Cities That Work that um, aims to bring together the insights of economic policy with practical experience from policymakers and practitioners in order to both highlight and inform the trade-offs that policymakers are facing in urban policy. So led by Professors Paul Collier as well as Tony Venables, Ed Glazer, and Executive Director Jennifer Musisi in Kampala and Mayor Dalil in Cape Town. The initiative works closely with policymakers across cities to inform policy debate. We're very interested in collaborating with different institutions, both within the School of Economics and also elsewhere. So um, part of the reason we're very excited to co-host the event today with LSE Cities is to also hear about the different work that's being done on housing policy um, in this space. Um, We'll be sending information on the initiative round to the audience after the event, so please get in touch if you'd like to hear more about the initiative. So today's event is going to be looking at one of the biggest challenges facing developing cities today, and that is how to overcome constraints to affordable housing provision for rapidly growing populations. Across the developing world, the pace of urbanization has outstripped the ability to, of governments to provide affordable housing for its citizens. Urban, as a result, urban growth is happening through informal, unplanned, low density and poor quality housing. And not only does this have negative implications for the quality of life of citizens, it also limits the ability of firms and workers to cluster together in a way that makes cities an engine for growth. The response of many policymakers in developing countries is to launch large-scale public housing projects to address the housing gap. But in many cities, this has unfortunately proved prohibitively expensive. And the housing that's been provided is often in areas disconnected from the rest of the city and the jobs and services that cities can provide. So today we're going to be discussing alternative policy options in addressing the gap between housing supply and rising demand in developing cities. Each of our panelists is going to be given five minutes to present the case for a particular area of housing policy before we explore the challenges and the potential for these different options for cities at different stages of development. Um, throughout the evening, we're going to be using Poll Everywhere to find out both what you think of some of these issues and also to get your questions for the, for the panel. Um, you may have already used this in, at an event at the LSE Festival, but if not, you can access Poll Everywhere using the link that I believe is available on, on the screen. Um, if it's not, it is um, pollev.com forward slash LSE Festival. Um, you can Wi-Fi access this via the cloud or edge your room if you're from a participating institution. So please do take a minute now to get out your phones and, and get access to that app because we'll be turning to you shortly with our first question. Um, you can tweet about the event using the hashtag LSE Festival. And without further ado, it's my pleasure to introduce our fantastic panel for today's discussion. Um, from closest to me, we have... Um, Paul Collier, who is Professor of Economics and Public Policy at the Blavatnik School of Government in Oxford and Director of the International Growth Centre. Paul has worked extensively with developing country and city governments on urban policy, and his work looks closely at the role of policy in providing connectivity between firms and workers to drive growth. He is, has recently worked very closely with the city of Kigali as part of their advisory committee, where he's worked with the city on, amongst other issues, how to house a rapidly growing urban population. We also have Paida Hlambello, who is director of Vivaki Architects, a firm that's been involved in architecture and master planning across a number of different cities, African cities. He's worked extensively in housing in cities in Rwanda, Zimbabwe, and Botswana, and also sits on the Kigali, City of Kigali Advisory Committee to, to advise on housing policy and planning for the city. And finally, we have Rabina Karuna, who is um, city's advisor for the Department for International Development. Um, where she leads DFID's policy and, in, on, and international engagement on urban economic development. Rubina is also chair of uh, Architecture Sans Frontières UK, which focuses on building the capacity of local communities to be part of an urbanization process through architecture. 
So I now am going to be asking the first question to our audience, um, which is, what is the key constraint you think um, to affordable housing in African cities? The first option is that income levels are just too low. The second is that land and housing regulations make formal housing too expensive. And the third is that cities do not plan adequately for urban expansion. So if you could all take a moment to vote, we can see the, the votes coming up on the screen now. I should also mention that we released this poll to our social media audience before the event, and we found that 37% of people thought that the issue was that income levels were just too low. 15% thought that regulations were um, too made housing too expensive, but the vast majority, 48% thought, I mean, it, with a strong lead, 48% uh, of people thought that cities, the, problem, the core problem was that cities do not plan adequately for urban expansion. And it looks like we're getting relatively similar responses from our audience today. I'm going to give it just a couple more seconds for people to vote in. Okay, so it looks like 13 people have voted for income levels being too low as the key constraint to affordable housing. 13 people have, have voted for land and housing regulations making formal housing too expensive. And 37 people have said that cities do not plan, 38 people now have said that cities do not plan adequately for urban expansion. Oh, 40, okay. Um, so now that we've heard our audience's thoughts and it looks like at least Paul's got his work cut out for him to convince his audience that regulations are a key constraint. Um, I'd like to ask our panel to each give their pitch for housing policy to address constraints in developing cities. Um, so if I can first ask Pida to come and speak, drawing on his experience of providing housing in many, in many cities as to sites and services as a policy for addressing housing constraints. Thank you, Priya. Um, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on it. I am more of a practitioner who is actually trying to solve some of the problems that we're talking about and looking through. Uh, I'm not shy to say I'm a very, very proud African. And uh, problems in Africa are part of my heart and what I'm all about. It's kind of trying to look at how can we resolve some of the issues that we're talking about regards urbanization in Africa. One of the things we see about African cities and African, um, particularly urbanization in Africa is this. Most of the infrastructure in Africa was built at colonial times. At independence, or when self-rule was attained, most of that infrastructure sort of like slowed down in terms of how it, was, it, began, to, it began to improve over many years. I'll use an example of the city of Kampala, for, for example. In 1962, when independence was done, Kampala's population was about 150,000 people in Kampala. If you look at the historical map of what Kampala looked like in 1962 in terms of uh, infrastructure, and you, then you looked at a 2016 Google map of what it looks like, it looks very similar. But there's been 55 years between the two. The population, however, in 1962 was about 150,000 people. In, two, in, two, in 2016, over two million. So the rate of urbanization has been significantly high in terms of where that comes into, but the infrastructure hasn't kept up with actually trying to accommodate that num th those numbers of people when you bring into it. One of the challenges you get in, a, uh, in, in African cities and African countries, and we would say during the voting here, is income in order to be able to provide yourself with, with housing. Now I'm gonna take you on a bit of a history a personal family history. Growing up as a young child, I used to go on holidays to the rural areas. Every African child would probably have that to them to onto it, away from the urban, uh, from the urban cities. Now, we did not have formal urban kind of grids of streets and cities within the rural areas. My grandparents lived in uh, what was a compound of uh, a place that they built themselves. Now, where did they get the land from to do that? In each rural community, you had a chief, and that chief would hand out land when you got to an age where you became a man and got married and had a family. Within, on your own piece of land, you built your own home. 
When your kids grow up, you also give them part of your land for their own home and they grew their food and that's how communities grew in terms of becoming what you get as rural settlements in, in, in most African countries today. The challenge with urbanization is this. You come from a community that was used to self-building their own homes and their own facilities into a very kind of westernized way of living where you're expected to have an income in order to buy a house or in order to have a mortgage into it, it's a completely alien sort of like type of, of living or environment onto it. And you're also coming into a place where the jobs are not there or available for you to get that income in order to get that mortgage, in order to get that housing. And you also have the pressure on government or policy providers in order to provide this housing. Now, building housing for uh, um, this type of rate of urbanization is very restrictive. I don't think there's any African government that would have the resources in order to build a house for absolutely everyone. Now my challenge for policy makers is this. Why not go back to what we used to do anyway within the rural areas where chiefs handed out land. They did not build the houses for people. But the policy becomes build the infrastructure, serviced plots, and hand out the serviced plots and let the communities and let the people self-build their own homes over a period of time. I'll use an example of what happened in Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe was independent in 1980. In 1984, the World Bank started a program with the Zimbabwean government of trying to deal with this rapid urbanization. Now, they put about $43 million then in, on, on this program, which lasted for about 10 years, in which they tried to put together serviced plots, which were then given to what they called poor communities in order to be able to build your own home or build some sort of homes onto that. When the program was closed in 1993, it had put together 20,000 plots, which were about 200 square meters each, which gave a density of about 50 units per hectare. Significantly high and quite good. But what it did is this. Instead of putting people in apartments who are coming from, I am used to be in the rural area, I used to have my own plot where I could do things by myself, and I go into an apartment where mm, this kind of living is very alien to me, to the way I was used to living, I'm used to having my own piece of land, they were given 200 square meter plots on which I could build my own house. Now, I don't have a lot of money. The first house I built was a one room unit, but there's infrastructure, there's road, there's power, there is uh, uh, sewer facilities, there's water. Next year, I've made a little bit more money. I add another room. Next year, I add another room. Today, those same communities, which are founded in 1984, when you go and you look at these communities, They've got four, five bedroom homes on those same 200 square meter plots, self-build over many years. Now, if policy provided that our provision of housing became less of bricks and mortar, but providing the piece of land on which the developing community can own the piece of land, can begin to build their own homes over a period of time, we will maybe be beginning to somehow maybe solve some of the housing problems that we have. Because um, to try and give four bedroom houses, three bedroom houses from day one is extremely restrictive, particularly in communities where the income levels are low. And communities where there's no income levels because employment does not exist either. So my challenge um, to, to, to policymakers in the case that I make today is build the infrastructure, provide the service plots, and let the people build their own houses. Thank you. Thanks, Pida. Um, if I could just ask Rabina now to speak on um, rental housing policy, drawing, <laughs> drawing on her experience as DIFFIS City's advisor and working with governments on housing policy. Um, thanks. <laughs> um, okay, welcome everyone. Good evening. So, because as we've heard, there's a massive um, challenge on housing, and it needs a diversity of options. Um, and I think that includes a diversity of tenure options. So if you look back through the history, 20, 30 years, around housing policy and how governments have gone about it, we, to a large extent, have seen a move from a, a big provider of housing, in terms of government, to being one as an enabler, and to allowing the market to provide housing. At the same time as doing this, 
what we've seen is house, government policy on housing been much more about focusing on home ownership. So as they've moved to an enabling approach, they've encouraged private development of housing, but in ways that provides tax breaks, tax incentives, um, subsidizing mortgage markets um, to support the provision of housing in the <coughs> private sector. And this has basically led to a very narrow focus on home ownership as the way to access housing. And there are a couple of things that I think um, contradict this as, as a reason to be the only type of approach. One is that there's increasing evidence that more and more people are renting. So over a 10-year period from 2001 to 2011 in India, the number of people renting went from 15 million to 21 million. We know recent statistics show that in Johannesburg, 42% people are renting in cities. In Cairo, it's around 60%. Secondly, we know that accessing finance for people at the lower income level is really difficult, and particularly to access mortgage finance, both in, because of issues around income, but also because they often don't have the, rele the re relevant documentation that they need. And then finally, there's an issue about thinking about how urbanization is happening in many cities today. Absolutely, people are moving to cities, and you're seeing an increase from rural, of rural to urban migration. But some of that movement is relatively circular. People are moving to cities to access jobs, sometimes on a seasonal basis, but may also move back to rural areas. So actually, when they come to a city, they may not actually want to buy a house. They may not need that as their option, and they need something more flexible. And so a rental option could make more sense. So basically what we have seen is this kind of push towards home ownership that I think has led to basically unequal access in the market. And this is why I think rental is a good option. And I think when we talk about rental, this isn't just about um, looking at governments providing social rental housing, although I think that could be a viable option. I think it's about how you encourage private landlords to move into the space more and, big, and private developers to actually develop housing for renting. And it's also about some supporting small-scale landlords, because often, actually, the people securing rent, rental housing are from relatively small landlords who just have a few plots here and there. So how can we do this? I think we do this through both demand and supply policies. I think there also has to be a real concerted effort around regulations and legislation for rental markets, kind of legitimizing them, particularly the informal sector. And that also includes protection for both landlords and tenants. Because in particular for landlords, many of them themselves are not always in particularly secure livelihoods. And so we do need to have protections on both sides. Also needs to look at investing into dispute resolution processes. And there are some examples of that in Latin America, for example, and in South Africa. And I'm saying this as if there's no approach to rental housing at all in many of these cities. There absolutely is. And there are some interesting examples that have emerged. Um, in 2014, um, India introduced a process for renting for migrants moving to cities. Um, Chile, I believe, also has looked into subsidizing rental housing. But I think what there has been is a lack of a real concerted effort to focus policy around this. And I think it's a missed opportunity. And so, you know, my kind of pitch on this is that, at the least, government policy around housing needs to be more tenure neutral. And if possible, we need to start trying to promote the rental housing market as a viable option. Great. Thanks very much, Rubina. And yes, now, um, Paul, if I could ask you to speak on land use and building regulations based on your work with governments and the insights from your research. Sure. I'm, I'm going to build very much on what uh, Pryor said, because uh, a week ago we were both on this advisory council in, uh, in Kigali, um, and Kigali's got a plan for 2040, uh, and I think you need... You need two time frames when you're thinking about urbanization. Um, Kigali, Rwanda, still a low-income country, per capita income only $750 or something like that. 
and um, 1.3 million in the city, 100,000 people coming every year. So we're advising the mayor, and our advice is think, you know, next month there's going to be another 8,000 plus people. Where are they going to go? They'll need to live somewhere. Um, frame your affordable housing around that problem. Next month there's another 8,000 8, something people. And uh, as, as Biden said, if you start thinking, oh, we'll build housing, um, you end up with, you know, 50 a month or something like that. It's completely irrelevant to the problem. Um, and, uh, and so I think you've got, to, you've got to think of two time frames, really. One is this 2040. And the 2040 time frame, you've got to think, um, what is it vital to do now that will still be there in 2040? Or will never even be there in 2040 because you can't put it there in 2040. No? And the answer to that is the 2040 city is the underground of the city. Not the metro, but the stuff that is under the ground. Because it's much, much cheaper to put stuff under the ground before people are living on top of it than once they're there. No? So what you need to plan now for 2040 and get in place, exactly what Prado said, you've got to get the, the roads, and underneath the roads there's got to be some water, some sewerage, some electricity. And just keeping pace with 8,000 people a month is a lot to do for a mayor. You know, they've got a very limited budget, which is another story. That's another day, I guess. <laughs> um, uh, they need a tax base. Um, but if they don't do that, the, the, um, the infrastructure that's underneath, and those 8,000 people each month come and settle on top of the land, you never do it. That's why Kampala, and it's still got, as you said, they've still got basically the road structure of a city of 150,000, but it's now got 2 million people there. And it's too late to put in all that infrastructure now. It's incredible, it's very much more expensive. Priya's done some work, three times more expensive to retrofit, and politically a nightmare, because you've got to move people. So, the 2040, you plan underground, but what you put on top of the ground, which is where regulation comes in, has got to fit 2018, because the people who'll be putting homes on top of the ground are living now, not in 2040. And so, you mustn't set your regulations for what built on top of the ground that will be suitable in 2040. And that's what happened across Africa, because across Africa, certainly Anglophone Africa, they got the 1947 Town and Country Planning Act, which was legislated here and just rolled out across our grateful colonies. And that jammed Africa up with building standards that were ridiculous for the level of income. They were actually so high for Britain that even, it, even by 1980 we were starting to lower them because they were, they were just too expensive. Right? Um, and that's why what got built in Africa was not the city of 2040. Um, it was the city of 1750. It was a slum. You know? um, because people couldn't afford to abide by the regulations and so they ignored them. And you just put up shacks. So it became a single-story city across Africa. A single-story city means you've got a very dispersed city, and so you've got very poor connectivity. So it's a series of little villages, really. Um, whereas what cities are about is achieving connectivity. You achieve that through density. And so the building regulations that Africa got actually forbade density. They were ridiculously large plot size. And the only way you got sensible plot size was by ignoring all the regulations, but then you ignored every damn thing. You, didn't, you, you, you then just you achieved density by sacrificing livability. So, you know, the regulations in, uh, until they got changed in, you know, I mean, in Dar es Salaam, there's still, what's the minimum plot size in Dar es Salaam? Ridiculous 700 square meters, something, something <laughs> absurd. Um, the, sorry? 
Okay, <laughs> thank you. Um, uh, whereas it, in Delhi, what people, the average person living in Delhi has a floor space seven feet by seven feet. So that's how people actually live. They've, complete, they've achieved density by utterly sacrificing floor space. And there the regulations in Africa are saying you need, you know, you need this whole bloody room to, to spread out. Um, so the regulations will be great in, well, probably 2140, um, but they are really damaging for now. Um, Paul, not only did the plot size get too big, I've got to hurry up, yeah. <laughs> um, but the cost of building is too high. Um, because it's specifying um, very fancy building regulations, right? So um, that's the, the challenge. Um, why does it matter now, and then I'll shut up, um, that um, we've, got, we've got two lovely little statistics. One is that two-thirds of Africa's urban space is not yet, that, that will be there in 2050, um, is not yet built, because Africa's urban population will triple between now and 2050. So... The vital thing is to build the two-thirds that isn't yet there to build it right. And a, a figure I learned from Tony Venables today is that delta, that two-thirds between now and 2050 in African cities, would be bigger population, just the delta, than the entire urban populations of North America and Europe. So this is a first-order thing. Getting that wrong really, really matters. And that's what we've been doing. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. Um, so we've heard three very, very interesting options. So um, looking at building on existing rural practices and the ability of, of landowners to incrementally build their own houses through sites and services policy, recognizing a range of different tenure options and either at the very least being tenure neutral in the, in the way that we think about housing policy or recognizing and promoting uh, rental policy. And then also planning, both planning for the city of 2040 in terms of core, core infrastructure, but also regulating for the city and the income levels that you have now. Um, so to get our discussion started, I'd like to ask one challenge to each panelist based to, on, on, on what they presented on. Um, so, Rabina, if I could start with you. Uh, so, so you, you talk about rental housing policy and how um, that might be f moving towards a focus on rental housing policy could be a sustainable option. The, the one question that comes to mind is that any policies that will improve rental options for tenants without increasing housing supply, there's a danger of increasing demand for rental housing and potentially even reducing the supply of rental housing if landowners are, if there's a conflict between the quality of the, the prices, for example, that, that renters get and, the, and the, therefore the, the prices that the landowners are paid. Um, so is it fair to say that tenure, uh, tenure reforms without further policy to actually increase housing supply is only going to lead to an increase in prices and price certain people out of, of, of that market altogether? Yeah, I mean, I think probably with all of, all of our policy ideas, they, they can't happen in isolation. Um, and I think certainly from be, being at DFID, you know, we, we aren't looking at trying to, to just promote one, one approach here. This has got to be a broad spectrum of, of options that we look at on housing. Um, and I think with rental, it's, it's also about trying to support both, I guess, kind of the kind of formal housing supply that's already there. Mm -hmm. But there's also examples of, I think, in Johannesburg, there's a really interesting case of kind of backyard rental, which actually links into the idea of the kind of incremental housing approach, where, where people have, you know, built or incrementally built housing in their backyards and rented it out. Mm -hmm. So there are ways to increase the housing supply and, and, and continue to kind of and rent that out. Um, and actually, in that case, the... the um, the government there decided to just embrace that after years of knowing it was happening and it was quite informal. They actually kind of said, you know what, we need a pro-poor policy around this and how can we support that process, which also improves the conditions um, and the material and the way that it's used. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that would be my 
you. Great. Um, thanks very much. Um, and Paul, um, I have a question on the regulatory side of, of, what you, of what you mentioned. So I imagine in many cities the idea of, in particular, relaxing or reducing the regulations on building materials or on the size of housing would suffer quite a significant political backlash. The idea being that it seems as if regulations that are protecting the quality of life of citizens are being relaxed for, for the sake of for the sake of it, instead of building more housing. So, so how do governments effectively market this policy as one that's not compromising the quality of life of citizens, but but actually addressing their needs? Yeah, I think the. Um, um, First of all, I mean, regulations have to be appropriate for, they have to, it has to be affordable for an ordinary household to build according to the regulations. Otherwise, you're just banning people from having uh, a proper house. So you've got to define what is a, uh, a, a house that meets standards in terms of what the, the ordinary household can afford. And so that's the, the first message. We're not going to anymore impose these colonial hangovers of what um, you know, foreign civil servants thought was appropriate in Britain in 1947. We're going to do something that's right for us now. So I think there's a, there's a, there's a political message there. Um, I think there's also a, uh, a jobs message, because uh, if you have very high standards, um, the only b materials you can use are imported materials. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of scope for generating jobs um, through using local materials. And so it, it's crazy to sort of ban those things, and that's in effect what a lot of regulations do. So both a jobs front and a, um, you know, an appropriate for us front, that makes it, I think, politically feasible. Um, I mean, some of these regulations are so absurd. Um, Tanzania, I can't resist the story, right? For, <laughs> of a, a Tanzanian MP who built a house according to the planning regulations and was promptly arrested, prosecuted, and jailed because the argument was, if he's built a house to building regulations on an MP's salary, he must have been corrupt. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, Paul. Um, and Pilot, one question that comes to mind when talking about sites and services policies is, I know that in the past these policies have been attacked by the fact that they, they, they're often used by governments as a way of providing trying to tackle housing policy, but on, on pieces of land that are at the mo extremely disconnected from the rest of the city, so creating isolated pockets of housing for, for the poor. Um, and so, so how, in your experience, how have governments effectively been able to use these policies, but in a way that's, that can effectively connect, connect sites and services with the rest of the city? It's, um, it's um, picking up on trying to do new things sort of like outside of where the cities are. Uh, one of the challenges we have, particularly in African cities, is where the city was built or where the city was designed was all based on a colonial master plan. Mm -hmm. So it was never built to have this influx of migration to come into the city. Mm -hmm. So when you try and bolt on a population size uh, that is significantly higher than what the infrastructure was designed to carry, it becomes a problem. Um, I was looking at density numbers today uh, on, 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 on different cities. Um, Kampala's density in terms of uh, uh, population is about 8,500 persons per square kilometer. In comparison, London is 1,500 per square kilometer. So there is a lot of people in a place where the density was supposed to be for a few hundred. Mm -hmm. 
per square kilometer in terms of what the infrastructure was supposed to be. So when you get that kind of influx of a lot of density, there is a lot of pressure on the infrastructure. You almost have to rip up what uh, uh, Paul Collier was, was, was saying earlier, to rip up everything that's underneath the ground and start again. Um, Kigali, where we, we, we're doing quite a lot of work on the ground on, is, does, does not have a functioning sewer system. It's just non-existent. So every single new development that comes in has to have its own separate sewer system. Every single new building that comes into the city because it just doesn't exist. And it costs significantly lots of, of money to do that. So what has then happened is it becomes cheaper for governments to put new settlements on the peripheries of the city. So the city begin, begins to expand because it's cheaper just to start again go on the ground, start putting in the infrastructure, so putting in service plots, because to try and rip up what was in the city is almost impossible. Mm -hmm. I'll use Kampala as an example. If you try and go and rip up the center of Kampala, which has got all the old uh, colonial houses on these big plots that are going into it, the cost is so restrictive, mm -hmm. you're paying something like, this, this is like London, uh, 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 property price numbers, $2.5 million per acre for a piece of land, you know, in, in the center of Kampala. Impossible to try and start redoing the infrastructure and start doing all of that. So the solution then becomes, uh, governments think, okay, we can't do this. Where do we go? Outside the city. Here is uh, 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 a thousand hectares of land. We put in a new settlement. It becomes disconnected from where the jobs are because now you need to travel in for the jobs, travel in and out. So that connectivity now becomes a problem because you can't move people from one place to another. The challenge becomes also the densities that we're working on. It's a cultural challenge. We, in many African countries, we are used to our me having my compound, my plot. We cook smelly foods which are very tasty and very nice. Now, you take me from that kind of having um, uh, uh, our compound living and, and eating and being, uh, having an outside kitchen, an outside stove to cook on that, and now you want me to live on the fourth floor in an apartment. Where do I do my charcoal cooking outside because charcoal is cheaper than this electricity thing that you're telling me is a cooker that I want to cook with? So there's a series of problems that come with trying to put all that density close to the city. Mm -hmm. So the solution becomes small plot further out, expensive to come in for work on that, but it's, it, it's trying to meet this kind of social uh, um, dynamic mm -hmm. that the population has versus what the government can actually afford to do or policymakers can, can afford to do. But it's getting somewhere. Because remember the, the, the population densities I was talking about? When you look at Johannesburg and Nairobi, uh, their densities are 2,900 for Johannesburg and 3,900 for, for Nairobi, which is slightly lower. But the reason for that is those two urban centers are beginning to have more formalized kind of urban infrastructure. Mm -hmm. It's still not there. But the more formalized it becomes, and um, as suppose saying, we're no longer looking at this kind of one-story city, and you begin to look at how can we increase the density of dwellings per square kilometer. The people are there. The densities of the people per square kilometer are there. But the density of the dwellings and how they're working is not the same. So the, the built stuff is not doing the same as what the people are doing within the, within the area. Um, you begin to see services being delivered in a much better way mm -hmm. um, in, and, and in a probably more cost-effective way. Thank you. Um, so, Paul, if I could ask you, so of the options that we've discussed so far, how, how do you think they work in terms of se sequencing of priorities for, for, for a country, for a developing city? And drawing on what Pida said, how do, how do governments make sure that their housing policy is connected to transport policy to make sure that yeah. some, some of these, we, we, you create the connectivity that, that can allow for different levels of density? I mean, you're trying to end up with cities that are livable and where people can be productive. And that means decent amount of floor space and uh, high connectivity. Um, high connectivity requires a certain amount of density, mm -hmm. but you don't achieve density by a single-story city 
squashed up, like in Delhi, you know, seven by seven, where on earth do you sleep? Um, the, um, so I think what we've, what we've not talked about yet is transport. And if you're going to have a city where you're starting to put people out on the edges because you can't redevelop the center, um, and of course these cities growing 100,000 a year are going to get spatially bigger, for sure. But you've then got to make sure that you've got the, the transport connectivity. And um, the, the nightmare is that um, mayors look in a magazine and see a monorail somewhere and say, what we want is that, you know. Um, uh, so it's got to be cost-effective, feasible um, transport systems. And the, 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 the technology for, um, for affordable transport in cities in poor countries is basically buses. Um, cars are your enemy. Cars jam up a road, they're sort of like digging up the roads. Lagos had a 24-hour tra traffic jam a while ago. And, and the roads in Lagos are just frozen. You know, you might as well not have had them. Um, so you need to give privileged access to buses. And the simplest way of doing that is bus lanes. But then if you create bus lanes, you've got to enforce them. And a basic principle of regulation is if you're going to regulate it, enforce it. If you can't enforce it, don't try and regulate it because then you get people breaking the law easily and, and that produces bad habits. So bus lanes is part of it. And the other part is even simpler and cheaper, uh, and that is bus schedules. Um, if you don't regulate the bus schedules, what the buses do is sit in the central terminus, bus terminus, and wait until the bus is full. That's the privately profit-maximizing strategy for that bus owner. And then all the bus owners do it, and so the buses just sitting there waiting. You can't get into the bus terminal because it's full of buses. You wait until it's full before you move. Um, and so the buses aren't really used. You can increase the usage of a bus, the, the, the number of people it carries each day, by a factor of four just by imposing a bus schedule and enforcing it. So, you know, that is, that is super cheap. Um, bus lanes and bus schedules, they sound very humble and mundane. Um, but actually, they're very much more effective than monorails, and they are about a thousand times cheaper. Thank you. Um, so just before we open up for the questions, so if, if people haven't been already, you can text in your questions to the Poll Everywhere app, and they'll be coming up on the screen right after this. Um, I just wanted to uh, sort of ask one final question on financing of, of the, all of these programs. So I think that that's quite one thing underlying all of, all of the discussion today. And, um, Rabina, I was, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on innovative or, or, or ways that you've seen that governments have been able to effectively finance some of these schemes, even if they're on the lower cost end of, of housing provision. So, yeah, I'm probably going to sound a bit negative, but I think... <laughs> I. I think generally, okay, so in DFID, we do a lot of work around infrastructure, generally, and around financing of infrastructure, a lot of it around private financing of infrastructure and, and also public. But in those discussions, housing just doesn't get included. So I work as an infrastructure advisor, that's part of the cadre that I, I work within. And I often feel like I'm the only one saying, hey, what about housing? Because it is an essential infrastructure, but is often not viewed in that way. But there is a lot of work going on to look at how we can be more innovative in drawing on financing for infrastructure. And we should be looking at housing as part of that. And that is a whole range of things, whether it's trying to support governments to look at how they can expand their tax bases to raise own source revenues, um, to being able to themselves access finance. Um, and, I know, and we all know, as we've touched on, that that is a constraint at the city level. And that's a whole other discussion, as we've said. Um, but there's also the ideas around social impact investment um, and trying to bring kind of that kind of impact investment down, down market and downstream. So there's both trying to get them to kind of partner with governments or with national housing banks um, or with commercial housing providers um, to provide some of that finance, which is both 
um, doing something which is a social good but is also getting a return. There's also more that needs to be done around working with local finance and local banks to actually show there's a market for housing, whether it is rental or home ownership or just being able to access microfinance and that there's a viable market there where people towards the bottom of the pyramid can pay and they can make their repayments. Um, and so I do feel quite passionate that there needs to be much more done in what is essentially still a bit of a gap um, on the financing side. And we're not there yet at all. And recognizing there are lots of challenges, but I don't think housing is often part of those infrastructure financing discussions. Great, thank you. Um, so we're now gonna open up for some questions from the audience. Um, I'm hoping that we're going to see some questions up on the screen at some point soon. <laughs> um, I'll just give it a second. Ah, oh, here we go. So either this means it's not working or no one's asked a question. So I might start off the questions, but pe feel free to keep texting in and hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll get, it, get it working soon. Um, so I had a question that um, maybe, uh, Pida, if you could give your thoughts on, which is that um, obviously when you're thinking about sites and services, you're planning for the future of a city. And I imagine that for many governments it's very difficult. I know that in Kampala, um, when we're talking to, to the city government about housing policy and, and infrastructure investment more generally, there's a huge concern that any investment made in the future of a city is investment not being made in citizens that already live in those cities. So how do you think that governments are, can or, or should be able to respond to those conflicting constraints on, on, on their limited finances? The, the, the challenge with um, governments is that the work in political cycles so kind of thinking of your 20, 40 years is less like, it's like oh, you know what, I've got four years for my election to come onto it. Mm -hmm. So th those are political realities. Yeah. And so quick wins is what, you know, what have you done in the past four years of that so that we can elect you back into office? So that, that usually kind of then becomes a conflict with these long-term plans, which is what a piece of infrastructure is. Mm -hmm. um, most of these programs of um, house, house building onto that, the, the program that I talked about in, in Zimbabwe before, uh, took 10 years to get 20,000 plots. Right. Now, that didn't even scratch the surface in terms of what was required. It was supposed to be providing something like 150,000 a year, mm -hmm. and yet in 10 years it did 20,000. 20, so it's, um, it's, it, it, it is very, very much challenging for politicians to think in the long term when they have got short-term goals that they, they need to, to meet and they need to kind of see with, 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 their, with where they're going. Um, what is interesting is the model that um, uh, Rwanda has done with this, the city of Kigali is to almost kind of invest in a vision that they sell to the population and the people as well to say this is what we're thinking for 2040 mm -hmm. and the vision is quite ambitious this is what the city master plan is this is what the strategic idea is this is what we want our city to look like mm -hmm. but what they did is they took the population with them so there's consultation with the people, say, this is, is this how you'd like your city to look like? This, this is where we're going to? And they've started something quite interesting in getting citizens involved in the process mm -hmm. of, 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 go, of going there. One of the challenges with um, urbanization is um, informal settlements coming up everywhere. So you get a place where it, that looks like an empty piece of land. So people have come in from the rural areas and say, oh, we can build right there. Within five years, you find there is now a thousand people where there was nothing before, and they've built their homes. So the self-built thing must, must work because they're living somewhere, and it it's, it's kind of works onto that. They've built somewhere. But the challenge with that now is you're then finding governments playing catch-up. They're now trying to go and provide services on those pieces of land or try and relocate those informal settlements and build, their, build them homes somewhere else so that you can give them services. So it's always catch up. It's always trying to do catch up the whole time. What's fascinating about Kigali is when you get citizens to 
work as part of delivering the policy and you don't leave it just to local authority, on every last Saturday of the month, like uh, tomorrow in Kigali, what happens is the city shuts down uh, the first half of the day until 1 p.m. Now, no vehicles are allowed on the street. And they call it um, Umuganda Day, where basically you clean the outside of your house, the street, the section in front of your house. Every citizen does it. Because if you don't do it in front of your house, everybody will know. It's basically, basically it's yours that's, that's, that's kind of dirty onto it. But it's fascinating how pretty much every citizen takes it very seriously, and they do it. And surprise, surprise, it's the smartest city in Africa. Yeah. Yeah. And government doesn't pay a penny to clean it. It's astounding. It's actually working. It actually happens. I, I, I always try on my travels in Africa to be in, 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 in Kigali on that last Sunday of the month because I, I find it fascinating and I kind of watch it as a spectacle. But, but it does work when governments kind of shift um, to go on, yes, this is policy, but allow the population to be part of the process of delivering what that policy is because otherwise it will be about short-term gains as you're, as you're mentioning and then it loses momentum after each election, after each election it kind of moves, loses that momentum. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you. Um, Paul, Rubina, if you have any further thoughts on that question, otherwise we could, um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do questions live because I'm not sure this is, this is necessarily working. Um, yeah, the gentleman in the blue jumper. Uh, wanted to ask, the biggest difficulty we have now in the Western world is this divide between the wealthy elite who can afford places in Central and Central East. Uh, Africa's relatively fortunate in the fact that it's not had that income level to really differentiate between those who are just coming to the cities with the other ones now and those who have been there for many years because the infrastructure's not been there to really make the differences we have in London. How do you avoid that from happening? Thanks. If we could, um, if there's one more question, we can take two at once. Um, the lady in the front, if um, yeah, there's there's a microphone there. <laughs> I think you had your hand up as well, but. Uh, just a quick question about delivery capacity. You've spoken about 50 units a year. You've spoken about 20,000 over 10 years. Um, Rabina has alluded to some cynicism about government delivery capacity. What are the agents for delivery capacity to increase and how can they be facilitated in contexts where there isn't much rehearsal or precedent for having the financing available to deliver? How do you mobilize that if the finance does become available? Great. Um, so if we can start with those two questions. Uh, Paul, if you could give your thoughts on how to avoid the phenomenon of the yeah, I mean, vast I, different... Yeah, go ahead. Sure, I, mean, it's, I think, um, first of all, the idea that, you know, sort of Africa's all nice and equal, um, uh, it ain't. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, uh, Nairobi, um, the... Uh, the you know the biggest slum in Africa, Kibera. Um, the who who owns that land? Well, you might think it's the people who live there, but generally no. Who owns it? We actually did a study on that, and it's top politicians, top civil servants, top military, um, and uh, it's a stalemate. They'd like to develop it, but they can't evict. They don't have enough ownership rights to evict. And um, the people who are living there um, can't afford to pay anything like a market rent for the value of the land. And so we estimate if you could just sort of redevelop Kibera, probably give the value of the land to the people living there, uh, you'd release something between $1 and $2 billion. Right? It's such underutilized land that it's such a stalemate because of this absurd structure of ownership the people in power have grabbed it. Um, much very similar in Kampala. You know, or the, the, the Jennifer Masisi told me, you know, basically six people own a lot of Kampala. So the idea that this is a, a you know, a, an equal paradise that's not been messed up yet, no, it's been 
you know, really messed up. So, um, and why is land prices so high? You know, you gave this example of what central Kampala, two and a half million pounds. Of, you know, I mean, why? Because the land isn't taxed. The obvious way to get the land price down is to solve the revenue problem that you asked about by imposing a proper tax. So you zone land and the, obviously the inner city would have a high land value and then you'd have an annual tax that would be quite substantial. That would get the price down and then you'd also get revenue for the city to be able to buy the stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, and finally I can't resist um, <laughs> building on your smartest cheap point, which is absolutely <laughs> right. Um, and the cooperative day each month, um, cooperative is cheap. Cooperative is good. How did Britain get affordable housing? Well, I'm, I'm born in Sheffield, right? And Sheffield, one of these great northern cities that actually, how did we get housing? We created, we invented a new financial technology called the Building Society. Yeah. And a town not far from me, Halifax. The group of people, mutual cooperative building society we save we borrow um, and exactly that sense of reciprocal obligations it grew to be the biggest bank in England whilst it was run as a mutual as a cooperative and then uh, with the objective of improving the efficiency from this incompetent bunch of mutuals in the north of England who didn't know how to run it it was handed to the city of London so it had taken 150 years to build it from nothing to the biggest bank in Britain it took only 15 years to crash it from the biggest bank in Britain to bankrupt right, by the city down the road. Right? So mutuals, cheap, effective, much better than banks. Thanks. Um, so if I could just, uh, Rubina, if I could, if I could get your opinion on the second question about what are, who are the prime agents who are able to deliver this capacity increase and how can we be supporting those people? And then if I could ask each of the panelists to give their sort of final remarks because I think we're very close to time. Um, so yeah, good, very good question um, on delivery capacity. Um, certainly from a donor perspective, it's one that we ask a lot because um, we're always about going to scale, that's our thing. Um, so I think actually it's about looking outside of traditional delivery partners that we might think of in the formal sector or at least the kind of the governments and the private sector. It's also about trying to build new types of forms of organizations that can be affordable housing providers and have that as their mission but you're also supporting them to build, build their capacity to be able to do that um, and I think when you have those kind of more smaller organizations who know their offtake because that's really important you need to know your market and who you're selling to it's actually not that easy to set up affordable housing providers and be able to sell housing it isn't easy. It's a, take, it's a long term commitment. You need to know your market, you know the people who you're going to sell to. You also have to build long term relationships with local and national governments on things like regulations. I remember with the housing program that we've overseen getting very geeky about talking about density and plot sizes. And, and, and what you need is those kind of institutions to be able to influence changes in policy. I think also it's also about how communities can be part of the delivery solution. So in Nairobi, there's an interesting example where a portion of land has been delivered over to a community organization and been designated as a special zone so that they can look at how they might plan out the housing there. And I think that's a really interesting idea. And it's not novel, um, but I think it'll be interesting to see how, how that develops. So I think it's about trying to think about different agents of delivery that may not seem that normal. And I had, I'd also written down the Building Society example uh, that Paul mentioned, because actually it's based on savings. That's how it was done. And there's lots of examples of saving cooperatives in many of the countries that I work in, that we work in. Um, so it's there, and some of it's untapped, and that's an opportunity. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, any final words before we go to our um, audience? Our to see if any of our audience have changed their minds on the, on the initial poll? Just on developing capacity, um, the, the key capacity is the capacity within the, the city mayor's office, as it were, to be able to, to think ahead. And, and, and um, a good leader um, in Kampala, after 50 years of neglect, you've got Jennifer Masisi, who's 
fantastic. She's got a sense of purpose and she's communicated that sense of purpose to her team. Um, I asked her once, how did you build such a motivated team? Um, and she said, it was easy. Uh, when I came in, I just sacked everybody. <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, she changed all the job descriptions. She made damn sure that everybody didn't under People realized this is not business as usual. This is a new dawn. Um, and she then walked the talk. She, you know, she works from dawn to, to dusk, and she's, she's, she's passionate about it. And she's got this narrative of common purpose, um, uh, exactly the same thing that we saw in, in Kigali, this sense of common purpose. So um, the when you've got purpose, capacity follows on. People will acquire the skills they need. But unless you've got purpose, all this sort of train, train, train doesn't do anything. Thank you. Um, Pida, unless you... Yes, no, it's, it's just... Very a, it, it's, it's very brief just to say, you know, it, when you get the community involved in policy, it then begins to actually shape itself because the, that policy is supposed to be enabling uh, the provision of that housing for, for those people in terms of where, where they are and what, what, what they're about. Very interesting. The two questions that, that, that we asked could, be very, could actually be linked in a, in a, in a very interesting way because um, unlike the Western world where there is a certain quite a bigger percentage of people of that class and people of that lower class, in Africa it's a handful of people, a handful of people who hold kind of the keys to absolutely everything that, that you're looking into it. Um, but there is a way in which if the population is involved in policy shaping, it's involved in kind of seeing that policy is actually done onto, onto that, um, there is release of this financing that we're talking about in, in, in order to be able to do all these different things. Uh, in Kigali that we're, t we're talking about is um, my practice is doing a lot of work there and my planning application doesn't matter what I am building and I kid you not is a hundred dollars. So that's my planning application fee to the city council. Does not matter how big a development I am doing. Now just simply that alone if you change it and you begin to do it by per square meter or by the value of the development itself, release a significant amount of resources to the city in order to do all the different services that we're talking about. So it's just kind of getting community involved in some of these decisions that are being made in, in policy shaping will make a difference, I think. Thank you. And thanks very much to our panel um, for an excellent discussion. <laughs>